0: Hello, and welcome to Great X Mentations. In this podcast, I dissect individual issues of Uncanny X Men and explore what makes each issue great or what makes each issue not so great. You can find video versions with extra bonus content of all these episodes over at my YouTube channel, Great X or by hitting up my website, greatxmentations.com. In today's episode, I'm taking a look at Uncanny X Men number 191. Let's go. Uncanny X-Men number 191 is titled Raiders of the Lost Temple, and man, it is a lot. In my review of the previous issue, I pretty much gushed over how much I enjoyed this arc and how much of an underrated classic it is, but I think that issue served the story a lot better than this one did. That's not to say it isn't good, though. The plot of this issue is pretty much exactly what you think it would be. The heroes trying to find a way to get into Kulunga's palace while trying to dispel all of his attacks and just looking for a way to overthrow his reign. Of course, it can't be that easy though, and pretty much everyone dies in one battle or another in this issue, including Selene who ends up double-crossing the heroes at the end anyway. But it's all gravy, because Doctor Strange is eventually freed and manages to cast some sort of temporal displacement spell that returns the world to normal before Kulan Goth was even freed from his amulet in the first place. Ugh. I mean, the ending is kind of a cop-out for me. It feels very much like an and-it-was-all-a-dream-style ending, which is kind of unfortunate. Those are always, like, the laziest ways to end an epic tale like this, because it takes away any opportunity to deal with consequences from the characters' actions that they did while they were induced under the spell. Luckily, this issue doesn't totally end without consequences, because there are are some consequences from Doctor Strange's actions specifically, in that his spell summons Nimrod from the future into present day, and so the X-Men will be cleaning up that mess a little bit later. But the lead up to this ending just felt like it was super, super rushed. This issue is definitely a bit more convoluted than the one that was just before it, and I sort of got the sense that the writer ran out of time and page count to really tell the story that he wanted to tell, and that by the end of the issue, he just had to make an ending and wrap it up. I'm still satisfied by it all though, like it's totally fine, but it definitely did feel like it could have used some room to breathe with like a few extra panels injected here and there. I think these two issues together should probably have been like two double-sized issues in order to really grasp the level of detail that the writer wanted to weave into the Kulan Goth world. I think not promoting these as special issues really did the storyline a disservice because when you stack this storyline up against the breadth of other X material out there, not a lot of people really remember this arc. The diehard fans and lifelong collectors like myself will remember it, but the casual X-Reader usually doesn't even have any idea about its existence, and I never really see this on anyone's top 10 greatest X-stories lists. That said, Chris Claremont did get his chance to really go in deep with high fantasy stuff when the Asgardian Wars came around. Those issues are double-sized and very, very heady to get through, so it might have been for the best that this Kulan Goth arc was a little bit more distilled. The Asgardian Wars come relatively shortly after this story, though, so I think maybe this arc was to serve as, like, A template for him in terms of pitching his bigger idea to Marvel because I can definitely see how the two of these storylines share similar elements and how the Asgardian Wars might have been influenced by things he either did or wanted to do but didn't get around to doing in this arc. In any case I still really like this issue even if I did feel it was like a little bit rushed at the end and kind of complicated. The action is all great and I love any time we can see the heroes fighting each other even if it is because of a mind spell. There's a lot of death in this issue which actually kind of cheapens it all for me because it makes me feel like Marvel was just trying too hard to like push the stakes and heighten the danger and really lean in on that ticking clock element for the heroes to try to solve the mystery. But overall, I still think this issue is great and I wish that more people talked about this arc. And not to mention this cover. I love a cover that just has a whole lot of head on it. Vision and Colossus squaring off in the middle is fine too, but what I really like is the background and all of those floating heads of all those characters teasing me on who's going to be featured in this issue. It looks like it's going to be jam-packed and it does not disappoint. Floating Heads is kind of a theme that the X franchise revisits again for at least one other cover during the 12 storyline, and I don't dislike that cover any less. But anyway, enough about this, let's get into the issue. Here are my highlights and lowlights from Uncanny X-Men number 191. Storm and Warlock Storm and Warlock work together for a lot of this issue, and for me, there's almost no weirder pairing than having these two team up. They each represent polar opposites of one another. Storm is like one with nature, and she's organic and totally like granola and biological, whereas Warlock is like circuitry and technology and absolutely nothing natural at all. Even their personalities are like total 180s from each other. Storm is so serene and confident and fairly no-nonsense most of the time, whereas Warlock is generally quite insecure and fearful and just like kooky animated insanity 24-7. Storm balances out Warlock's cowardice I feel in this and she even inspires him to bravery here. He sees how Fiercely she fights to avenge Rogue's death, and even though it's not at all the calm, cool, and collected storm that he knows, it's almost like something clicks inside of him and he realizes that it's okay for people to have different facets of opposing traits to make up their entire, overall personality. I don't even think that Warlock is totally the coward that he makes him out to be in the first place. He dives down to save Storm after he sees her being swarmed by the Hell Horde, and whether he was inspired by her or not, it is still a courage that he found from deep within himself. He puts himself at great personal jeopardy to help her, and there's absolutely nothing cowardly about that. I really like their interaction later, after Warlock has saved her and he's trying to communicate with her. Warlock is like one of three or four people whose mind wasn't warped by Kulan Gat's spell, so he knows the truth about what's going on here with this false reality, and he knows that he needs to convince Storm and somehow tell her what's happening too if he ever hopes to get things back to the way that they were. Unfortunately, he's speaking English and Storm is speaking in whatever barbaric language Kulan has conjured up, so Warlock has to resort to some clever pictionary in order to get his message through to her. There's just something so like cute and funny to me about Warlock's methods here. Storm has no clue who Warlock is, and even though he looks pretty frightening, it's a testament to Storm's strength of will pushing through Kulan's spell that she doesn't immediately cast the first stone against him or like try to run away. Her true nature is still within her, and she can sense that Warlock's like a soft kind of kindred spirit type and soon she gets the gist of what he's trying to tell her and she understands that everything about this world is a lie. This whole interaction is just a great example of the needlessness of spoken language in order to form a bond and that trust and instincts however they are communicated is way more important in any relationship than just language. Storm and Warlock get even closer later on in this issue too when they finally face off against Kulan Goth himself. I love watching Warlock continue to use like pictography to communicate with Storm, like when he creates a facsimile of Kulan's necklace to motion to Storm that it's an important thing to get. And Storm is just so gung-ho, she's like, yep, this alien hasn't steered me wrong yet, so why would I stop trusting him now? They swoop down and Warlock traps Kulan and Storm grabs the necklace and everything is looking totally hunky-dory until Selene reveals her true intentions and then steals the amulet and immobilizes Storm and Warlock. Warlock's dying, Storm's probably dying too, and it looks like Selene will be the ruler of the world and like everything is lost until Warlock reaches out to Storm and the two of them form a new techno-organic life form this moment is like such a perversion of what it means to be Storm. Storm is the goddess of nature and here she is being consumed by circuitry and technology. I mean desperate times, desperate measures, and to her credit she doesn't even hesitate to undergo the transformation when Warlock offers it to her as a possible solution. She knows that it's their last chance to survive and to right the wrong of this world, so she's going to take it, even if it means she has to lose everything about herself that makes her her. Luckily, the gamble pays off, and they stop Celine dead in her tracks, and then Doctor Strange reverts everything back to normal. I do find it strange that Warlock isn't amongst the crew assembled in Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum at the end. Doctor Strange says that only the people who were present in the nexus of the time slip during the spell that he cast would even remember that anything happened at all, which I assume means that all of these people who are assembled there with him now are the ones who will remember it. And though I see Storm, I don't think I see Warlock anywhere at all. That feels like a major omission to me, because he and Storm were one entity at the time of the time slip. so why wouldn't he be there with her? And since he isn't there, does that mean that he's not going to remember anything, even though his mind wasn't altered by Kulan's spell to begin with? I just think it's a shame for him to not be there and to not remember how heroic he was in this issue. I think it would have done wonders for her self esteem, and I also think it's a shame if he won't remember of his and Storm's team up either. I don't think they ever really team up again like the way they did in this issue, so it's sad that their synergy now would have technically never happened at all. Also, shout out to Storm at the end for wishing that the dead stayed dead in the case of Celine. Man, if we forgot that Storm was in her bad girl phase right now, she just reminded us of it with that comment. Selene and Magma. Selene was a master manipulator in this arc. I honestly was totally sold that she was going to be like a heroic villain type in these issues and work completely with the heroes to end Kulongath's reign, but of course she had plans of her own for world domination all along. Her looking to team up with the heroes during her recruiting crusade last issue, all just to take down her mortal enemy Kulan Goth and to restore New York back to the way it was, was, in hindsight, far too pure a motivation for her after all. I had no expectations of her having any ulterior motive, but I mean, a duh, of course she did. In this issue, Selene is being held captive by Kulan Goth while Magma helps the heroes to rescue her, but as it turns out, this isn't Magma with the heroes at all, but it's actually the real Selene in disguise. She has, like, switched bodies with Magma and was never captive to begin with. I'm a little bit unsure as to when this little body switch between these two happened, though. I originally thought that maybe Celine replaced herself with Magma last issue before she was first kidnapped by Kulan Goth, like maybe she anticipated his kidnapping of her and she did a quick little switcheroo before it even happened. If that was the case, then why would Magma in Celine's body be acting so Selene-y after she was captured? Like, she's taunting Kulan Goth and is referencing powers that only Celine has and not Magma has. Wouldn't she be protesting that Kulan's got the wrong girl instead? Then again, Celine did place her and Rachel under a spell of servitude, so maybe part of that spell is for Magma to behave like Celine while she's in Celine's body. It's hinted that neither Selene nor Magma can use the Other's power while in the Other's body, like when Ileana scolds Magma for not helping fight the battle. If that was Selene in Magma's body at that time, which I think it was, then that means the switch of Selene and Magma would have had to have happened earlier than this issue beginning, like during Kulan's capture of Selene, or maybe even earlier when Selene was casting her Spell of Servitude to begin with. Maybe that's when she made the switch, right then and there. I don't know, it could have happened at any time, let's be real. But in any case, Megma and Celine are pretty much like one and the same for this issue in some sort of way. And I thought it was such a clever little story twist, if not a little bit of a complicated one. I totally didn't see it coming, so I really appreciate the effort that the writer took to delineate the plot a bit. I love Celine at the end when she has pretty much reached the finish line here in her quest to begin world domination. And if it wasn't for that darned warlock, she wouldn't have been rendered inert and utterly assimilated. I do kind of feel short changed at the end with Celine's storyline, though. It's over pretty much as soon as it begins and I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about how they probably just ran out of panels and page count to really give her dastardly scheme here some oomph that it needed. It saddens me because as soon as this twist happened with Celine, I was immediately reinvested in the story and I felt like it had grown anew. It was like they threw a new twist out here that just made it even more interesting. Maybe if this issue had been a double-sized one, then Celine wouldn't have been so short-changed in her plot in the end. Cool on Gath. Cool Goth was equal parts cool and terrible in this issue. His master plan is pretty clear, he seeks world domination and he'll employ any means to achieve it, including killing anyone who gets in his way, and that ends up being a lot of people. It's suggested that he has been keeping a bunch of kids captive for use in his blood magic too, and that he even has no qualms of incinerating his own hell horde if they fail him even once. Needless to say, the Glassdoor.com review on Kulangath as an employer would surely be scathing. In any case though, it's cool to see his power at work in this issue so that we can get a real sense of what he's capable of. He tortures Spider-Man, and disfigures Selene, and drains Danielle's and sunder's life forces, and transforms Wasp and Star Fox. Kulan is not a wizard to be trifled with, no matter how silly his hat may look. His own ego ends up being his undoing, though, and he lets the heroes get all the way into his throne room after they enter the palace, which is like, ugh, what are you doing? He knows that they've entered the palace, but instead of hunting them down and killing them right away, he just sends Starfox and Wasp to kill the guards whom they snuck past instead. This is like the level of hubris that every big bad employs in order to be defeated. To his credit, when he does face off against the heroes, they don't really give him much of a worry. Colossus is killed by Vision, and Scarlet Witch immobilizes a bunch of the others, so even though it looks like everything's going in his favor, he should know by now that heroes are at their most resourceful when they're at their wit's end, and it's only after it looks like Kulan has won that he finally loses everything. Storm and Warlock fly down and save the day, and then Celine makes her grand reveal too. So to Kulan's credit, even though he's totally guilty of letting his ego get the best of him here, it's not like he didn't deal with the immediate threats that he saw and dealt with them easily and accordingly. It was the unseen threats like Storm and Warlock and Celine, that ultimately did him in, and if Kulan hadn't been feeling so high and mighty up on that throne, then maybe he would have anticipated something like this potentially happening. After he's disposed of, and after Doctor Strange rearranges the world back into its original state, Kulan Goth is back in his necklace prison and is about to be freed, if not for Nimrod's timely interference then Kulan is basically just stuck in mud for what I'm sure will be a long, long time. I really liked Kulan Goth as an antagonist in the storyline, even though he's not really an ex-villain. I thought it was a fun change of pace for the ex-stories to explore this barbaric Hyborian age and to see some badass sorcery at work. Even though I don't think we ever see Kulan in the X-World ever again, he is definitely a welcomed rogue to revisit this gallery any day he wants to, as far as I'm concerned. Callisto Callisto is super resourceful again in this issue, and she's definitely one of the most formidable characters. She shows how adept she is at leadership, which I think is paramount to her character now since reobtaining leadership of the Morlocks is like her entire motivation in everything that she does these days. I know she's under a spell in this reality, so everything she does can only really be taken with like a grain of salt, but I really appreciate how she can so easily put aside her personal differences with the others for the sake of achieving the greater good. Like, I can't really think of a time in the regular reality when Callisto would so willingly want to work with Storm or Captain America or any of these other heroes. Sure, she's teamed up with Storm a ton in, like, recent years, but back then, it didn't feel like anything you'd ever really see her do. Here, Callisto is not only helping to devise strategies and to provide hasty retreats, but she's also showing an actual sense of remorse and caring for these teammates. There's a scene where Captain America is looking to Callisto for advice on where to hide next and she's distracted by her own thoughts so she doesn't answer him right away. It turns out that she was concerned about Storm and Wasp and Star Fox, all of these people who were abandoned and captured in the fight that they just finished. Her concern for Storm I can kind of understand, because even though they don't have, like, the same history in this reality as they do in the regular reality, they still know that they are connected, at least in some way. But, I mean, where does the concern for the Avengers come from? They aren't Morlocks, and they are far too beautiful for Callisto to ever really care about them, Star Fox in particular. So I just feel like this moment for Callisto shows how much of a big heart she actually does have, even if she hides it well. She's a killer, and she's got a real mean streak, but at the end of the day, I really think that she always has the best interest of her tribe in mind, and today, her tribe just so happens to consist of the X-Men and the Avengers. There's a heartbreaking moment later when Callisto is helping everyone sneak into Kulan Gath's palace via the Marlock tunnels. They are ambushed by Sunder and the New Mutants, and Iliana manages to strike a bunch of them with her soul sword and free them from Kulan Goth's sway, but before she can get to Sunder, Callisto ends up killing him out of self-defense. It's an instinctive movement for her, she slits his throat out of self-preservation, but what's heartbreaking about it is that she realizes that had she just fended him off for a few moments instead of killing him, then Ileana would have been able to free his mind and Sunder would have been one of the good guys again. Instead, now Sunder is dead. Callisto feels more rage than guilt out of this. There was no need for Sunder to have died, and she swears vengeance on Kulan Goth. But I think, more to the point, this just goes to show Callisto's temperament, and it's what really differentiates her from ever being able to truly be one amongst the heroes. Whereas the others are all doing their best to ward off the army by using non-lethal measures, Callisto's instinct is to kill. I'm sure it's an instinct that she's had to hone for many years as, like, a survival mechanism but it's no less of a stark contrast when compared to the other, more heroic attempts. I do think that she regrets her actions after killing Thunder, and I think a bit of her probably recognizes that she could have extended a bit more self-control in fending him off, but she's not someone to really lament on her actions either way, be them good or bad, and she's just going to swallow this moment and move forward the best way she knows how. We also get to see a little more into Callisto's personal baggage when Danny uses her power on her to bring forth her greatest fear. And it turns out Callisto's greatest fear is being seen as she once was, which is apparently a beautiful woman with the potential to have lived a life outside of the Morlock tunnels. What's funny to me about this is that of all the Morlocks anyway, Callisto has always been like the one who was least quote unquote deformed and always had the potential to live in the sunlight if she wanted to. The most that she really has here is like some scars and like a missing eye or just a blinded eye, which I'm not going to downplay any of this because however this affects her is not my right to judge. But comparably to some of the other Morlocks, like Leech and Mero, she gets off pretty easy in the deformed looks department. In this moment, we see that her hatred for whatever she was back then runs so deep that the thought of it actually sickens her. It's like, I'm curious to know what sort of trauma really went down with her here. How did she get scarred like this? And it makes me want to learn more about her history. Callisto does get a redo of this lifestyle a little bit later in the X-World after like the Siege Perilous days, but it's interesting to have the seed sown this early into her character so that we can get a feel for just how emotionally damaged Callisto really is. I think Callisto is a super interesting character and I'm so happy that she got some seriously great panel time in this story arc. Even though she's turned into a statue by the Scarlet Witch in the end, I'm pretty sure that she's among the few who's at Doctor Strange's Sanctorum who will remember everything that happened. I can't totally tell because she doesn't speak or anything in that scene, but there's a shadowy silhouette that I can't totally place and I think it looks like Callisto, so I can at least appreciate that Callisto has the memory of her time working alongside the heroes moving forward, and who knows. Maybe some of that new instinct she developed with them will rub off on her now. Spider-Man Poor Spider-Man. He really got a raw deal in this story. He literally is just a toy to be played with all issue long by Kulan Goth. The issue opens with him being tortured, and he's basically immobile until the end of the issue when he breaks free and shouts about Kulan's power being tied to the amulet. That's actually a key moment for Warlock and Storm in learning how to bring Kulon Goth down. But it's just so funny to me how it all transpired. Spider-Man is one of the very few people in this world who can speak English. So even though he shouts very clearly what to do, it's in a language that pretty much no one there in the throne room can understand. And then before Spider-Man can do anything else to try to communicate what he means, Kulan just kills him he's dead just like that. Luckily though, Warlock was one of those few people who could speak English and so he communicates to Storm what Spider-Man said, but I can just imagine how aggravating this would have been to Spider-Man in this moment where you're literally doing your Hail Mary save only to see it get lost on a bunch of blank faces because they don't understand your language or what you're saying and then to die right afterwards. It's like, well, I tried my best, but I guess the world is going to end now anyway. This storyline was never meant to be a Spider-Man centric story, so I'm not really sad that he didn't get to have like a big heroic saves the day moment at the end here. I actually thought it was really fun to see him as Kulan's prisoner, and then to watch as he tried and failed to save the day at the end. It's just a more realistic approach to storytelling than having him somehow find the strength after being tortured for like who knows how long to take Kulan down himself. I don't think that Spider-Man is among the people who will remember this experience because he's not there with Doctor Strange at the very end and I mean this is all probably for the best because he was literally just used as a punching bag for most of this entire story arc and Peter really doesn't need that to bring down his confidence. Rogue. In my last review, I kind of dissed Rogue because I didn't know what was going on with her green facial coloring, but we finally get an explanation in this issue. It turns out that the green in her face isn't a miscolor, color, and nor is it an armor, but it's like a hardened crystal gem form that she has absorbed to become invulnerable. This must be a direct allegory for her usual invulnerableness that she has in the regular reality. I guess crystals make more sense for the barbarian world instead of just like hardened skin. In this reality, her invulnerability appears to be like a temporary thing though, because she loses her gem form after she inadvertently touches a Morlock. Suddenly, the Morlock becomes crystallized while she reverts back to flesh. This is kind of weird to me because that's not really how Rogue's powers work. She's a power siphoner, but it's not like it's a two-way street. Whomever she's touching doesn't like swap anything with her. It's not like the other person obtains her abilities while she gains theirs. She just owns everything and the other person is left with nothing. This weird quirk in Rogue's powers in this reality doesn't do her any favors here, because she's instantly stabbed and killed as soon as she loses her gem form. So maybe this was just like a convenient way for the writer to eliminate Rogue from the story, even though she didn't really do anything of significance up to this point at all yet. So I don't really see what the harm would have been in keeping her around a bit longer. I just want to say that and Williams turned out to be 100% that bitch. She's literally a nobody character who I don't think ever made another appearance beyond this one singular issue, but she showed up and she turned out in this story. The heroes visit a temple when they're looking for information on how to defeat Kulan Goth, and she attacks them with a ferocity after she thinks that they are the enemies. She shoots a crossbow at Storm's head and almost makes contact too, but if it wasn't for Captain America deflecting the arrow just in the nick of time. She's brought down by Nightcrawler to explain herself, and it turns out that she's the only surviving archivist of this destroyed temple. She assumed that the heroes were responsible for the destruction since Callisto's with them, and Callisto is well known to be leader of Kulan's army. But she's quickly convinced of otherwise after Kulan's actual army attacks all of them. Later, Erlyn tells the heroes everything she knows about Kulan Goth, and then helps lead them through the Morlock tunnels herself, and even helps in the battle against the new mutants. She uses her cape to tangle up Wolf's Bane and distracts her long enough for Iliana to use the Soul Sword. That's two times that Aralyn has proven her capability in battle now, first with the crossbow, and then with the cape. She's so versatile. I think that her role as an archivist is probably meant to mirror that she's like a librarian in the real world, and. Even though librarians are painted with the stereotype of being shy and demure, this librarian is anything but mousy. She's totally feisty, and both Iliana and even Callisto acknowledge her courage and her capabilities. She may be only human, but Erlen isn't just gonna sit on the sidelines. I actually really love how Aerolin knows the lay of the land well enough here to navigate the team through the Morlock tunnels basically herself and without Callisto's help. Yes, Callisto is also impressed by this, but she also feels threatened and I love that Callisto plans to eliminate Aerolin at the next earliest convenience. It just goes to show more of how Callisto protects her tribe first and foremost above anything else, and so even though Aralyn is brave and working with them now and totally is an asset and is part of her tribe for now, in the end, she's just another human, so after all of this on goth business is over and done with, she's expendable. Aralyn is also one of the few people who are permitted to remember this experience, and if that is Callista who's with them there too, then maybe Callisto really did kill Aralyn after this story, and that's why we never see her again. That's kind of a morbid theory, but it's definitely not something that Callisto wouldn't do. I just thought that Aralyn was a really neat character to introduce here, and to give a fair amount of page time to, but for someone whom we never see again, it does feel like it was a bit of a waste. I love that she proved herself to be just as brave and capable as the heroes, and even though she's just a lowly archivist, if the point of her character was to humble the heroes a bit, then I think she did a good job in accomplishing that. I just wish that if they're going to develop someone as much as they developed her in this one issue, then it's worth our while as readers to see her again at some point. Also, part of me wonders if she was meant to be like an allegory to Madeline or Jean just based on like the red hair and her general look and stuff. I don't know, she probably isn't, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that my mind instinctively went there the first time I saw her. So, even though it's a bit shallow of me to attribute everyone with red hair to the Grey family tree, I couldn't help but think it. I guess since Erilyn remembers this incident, and all of her heroic deeds that she did, she's satisfied to retire back into her career as a librarian with no need for new adventures. And who knows, maybe she'll write a book about this experience someday. The Avengers My favorite part of the Avengers in this story was watching them all act as Villains I mean, depending on who you ask, the Avengers might be seen as villains anyway in the X Universe, but let's not hold a grudge. The Scarlet Witch and the Vision were notably absent from last issue, but they certainly make up for it here. The Scarlet Witch in particular seems to be one of Kulan's most powerful soldiers, and he has unlocked her full potential as a sorceress, so that's why she's able to harness the crimson bands of Sidorak to bind Colossus, and how she's able to turn all of Callisto's crew into statues the moment they arrive into the throne room. I actually thought that the Scarlet Witch was going to be another magic-wielding human that Celine and the crew were going to try to track down and recruit for the cause, but it looks like Kulan Gav got to her first. I really loved the transformation of Wasp and Star Fox into their evil selves. After they're captured, Kulan Goth transforms Star Fox into what is supposed to be the most beautiful man ever, and Wasp into, well, a giant wasp. I wouldn't necessarily say that this Star Fox would captivate me the way he's able to captivate others in this issue, but hey, to each their own. I really liked watching these two characters team up though, even if it was in the pursuit of evil. I haven't read a ton of Avengers from this era, so I'm not sure if Wasp and Star Fox frequently pair up this way, but it felt kind of like an obscure little team up as I was reading it, and that's what I enjoyed the most about it since this issue seems to be all about obscure team ups. Captain America leads most of the heroes in this issue, only because I think that's like his default role within the Marvel Universe, especially around this time. It's always funny for me how Iron Man ended up being the breakout star of the MCU, when really it feels like Captain America was the one Marvel had always wanted to become the star. It's certainly the character that Marvel pushed to the forefront as being, like, the emblem of Marvel Comics. And while he is definitely still iconic, I'm kind of happy that he didn't become, like, the one for the MCU. It just feels so predictable and boring, and Cap can be pretty stuffy, like how I think he is in this issue. In this issue, it honestly doesn't even feel to me like these heroes really need him to lead them. He's the one who devises the plans of how to break into Kulongath's temple, and he rallies the troops when it's time to fight and time to retreat, but none of it is really anything too groundbreaking as far as leadership goes, and any of the other characters could probably have come up with it themselves. I also don't really like how he didn't die in the end like pretty much everyone else did. He's knocked out after Vision and Colossus both explode right beside him, and then he doesn't actually do anything else in terms of saving the day from the rest of the battle, so while everyone else was dying and being turned into statues, I didn't see the point in keeping him alive. He is one of the few people who will remember what happened, and I actually find it funny here that he tells Storm straight up that even though humans will forget that the X-Men helped save the day, he'll remember it. As if that's supposed to mean anything to them. The X-Men's relationship with the Avengers and other New York heroes are strained in the best of times and there's a funny little moment during Civil War years later where Tony Stark is trying to recruit Emma and she tells it to him plainly that the human heroes are just never there for the X-Men in their moments of grief. Captain America himself has proven that he isn't necessarily always in the X-Men's corner anyway, and he's instigated a lot of grief for them over the years, admitting that he and the Avengers haven't stepped up in the way that they should have been stepping up when mutant persecution was at its highest. So for him to claim here to Storm that he'll remember this great service that the X-Men did rings super hollow to me in hindsight, knowing what comes from their strange relationship in the future. Doctor Strange Doctor Strange doesn't do too much in this issue except save the day at the last possible second. He harnesses Ileana's mutant ability and mashes it up with his own mystic arts to transport New York back in time to moments before Kulan Goth was freed, thus, creating a divergent timeline from the original one, which ultimately becomes the new prime reality for them. His meddling in the timeline is what brings forth Nimrod, and it's Nimrod who ultimately stops Kulan Goth from ever being freed. Nimrod appears in the subway at the very moment when the ruffian was about to kill the fisherman back in that panel from uncanny x-men number 189 and because Nimrod's programming won't let any harm come to humans he saves the fisherman but Kulan's necklace is thrust into some muck and is buried and thus him taking over new york just never happens Nimrod is a great consequence to come from Doctor Strange's spell, and it's a great ending to the story. But, of course, Nimrod being active in this timeline is just as bad as anything else is for the mutants. So, Doctor Strange's spell, while it helped them, it also hindered them. I love the idea of nature wanting to seek a balance, though, and Doctor Strange knows that for every boon there must come a cost as well, and even though they don't explicitly know about Nimrod's arrival yet, everyone is pretty much okay with accepting whatever consequences may come from Strange's spell. There's a cute moment here where Xavier plans to ask Doctor Strange about him mentoring Iliana in her sorceress abilities, but the doctor refuses, and instead he says that Iliana is already very adept in her magical abilities, and really, she just needs like a normal life right now, and to grow with friends and family around her. I can't remember if this is the first time that Ileana and Doctor Strange have ever met, but it's obvious that he's impressed from her right away, and it's no wonder that she ends up becoming a nominee to take on the Sorcerer's Supreme mantle years later after it's up for grabs. I liked Dr. Strange, and even if he was kind of like the Glinda of this issue and showed them that they had the power among them all along to go home, it didn't feel too contrived or too deus ex machina for me, and I liked that he was imperiled himself for pretty much the entire storyline and needed saving of his own before he could help save everybody else. Fashion My favorite fashion in this issue has got to go to Corrupted Magma when she wears the Black Queen's black garb. It's weird seeing Magma dressed all in black and I sort of like it on her. It's nice seeing Magma embrace a darker color palette than she's used to wearing and I dare say that she's her most interesting only whenever she's exploring darker sides. Her clothes actually keep changing between being black and white all the shoe long, so I don't know if that's just like a coloring inconsistency or if it's meant to be a story point. Like, I know that this is Celine posing as magma, but maybe the black clothes are meant to represent moments when Celine's evilness is seeping through and then she had to check herself and be like, oh yeah, I'm Megma and revert back to the purity of white. I mean, I don't know, I'm sure I'm reading too much into this, but at least I'm throwing them a bone to explain the inconsistency. Ad This issue, I'm highlighting the Monogram GoBots toy ad. At first glance, this just looks like a major ripoff of Transformers, and it looks that way at second and third glance too. This ad offers the kids a chance to play with the most popular figures from the planet Gobotron, which I'm guessing is another ripoff of Cybertron, which is where the Transformers come from. Or maybe all of these toys are part of the same extended universe, and the Gobots are like the Great Lakes equivalent to the Transformers' Avengers. You know, like the embarrassing cousin that isn't quite up to snuff, and you tend to ignore them any chance you can. Regardless, the GoBots come in several different transformable shapes like a sports car, a spaceship, a jet plane, and even, yes, a dune buggy. And I think what sets them apart from their hotter, more popular Transformer cousins is that these toys have built-in motors for kids to use so that the toys can actually move once they're done transforming. It's just a pullback and release mechanism, so nothing too fancy, but hey, differentiation is differentiation. Looking at this ad now, I actually do think that these GoBots might be pretty fun, and I'm not going to lie, that dune buggy is looking mighty funky and like he knows how to have a good time. Well, that's it for this issue. Thanks for tuning in. This arc was a bit of a heavy and wild ride, but I'm glad you stuck with me throughout it, and hopefully you feel inspired to check it out if you haven't already read it before. Feel free to stick around here and browse my channel for even more reviews like this one, or check me out on social media for a splattering of other X content. Thanks again for stopping by today, and be sure to come back soon for more great X-mentations. Tations, tations.